Welcome, one and all, to the Cool Worlds podcast with me, your host, David Kipping. This week, it is my great pleasure to be joined by Melina Rice. Melina completed her PhD at Yale under the mentorship of the legendary Greg Laughlin, one of the most innovative scientists I know in the field of astronomy. And it obviously rubbed off on her because Melina, too, has been incredibly innovative both during her PhD and since that time afterwards. So after finishing, she went on to move to MIT as a prestigious 51 Pegasi Fellow, and I think she was there for just one year before moving back to Yale as a junior faculty member. So obviously, Yale saw something very special in her and were desperate to get her back, and she's now a professor there. So she's just started at Yale and is building a new group. I wanted to catch up with her while she was visiting New York and hear about what kind of research will she be planning on working on, and what are the problems that she is most excited about. So in this conversation, we touch on three big topics that all are interlinked with her research program. We talk about going from the solar system and thinking about Planet Nine. How could we look for this strange object within the solar system using existing telescopes even before future generations come along? How can we do it right now? Then we talk about interstellar asteroids, meteors even, comets. We get into Oumuamua and whether we can detect more of those in the near future. And finally, we step forward into the exoplanet regime. And I think those three aspects, which seem unrelated, they really speak to the unifying nature of Melina's work. So please do enjoy this conversation with Professor Melina Rice. So, Melina, you are involved in a search for Planet Nine, which is this enigmatic object that we heard about possibly being in the outer edge of the solar system five, ten years ago now. And you are trying to search for this object, but maybe before you tell us about this search, which I think everybody's going to be fascinated by, maybe you can give us a little bit of the backstory about how it is that Planet Nine came to be a possibility in the solar system. Right. So the solar system extends a lot farther than our classical picture of just the eight planets that we know of and Pluto and the dwarf planets. There is a lot more out there that is bound to the solar system all the way out to the Oort cloud that's at thousands of astronomical units, so Mm -hmm. Earth-Sun distances. And in between the Kuiper belt and the Oort cloud, there remains a large space of just areas that you could hide things that haven't yet been discovered in the solar system. So uh, specifically, the idea of Planet Nine arose because of the extreme trans-Neptunian objects in the outer solar system. So these are some of the most distant asteroid comet-like objects that are kind of between the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud uh, that we're only able to see because some of them are on these really elongated orbits where they get close to the sun at some point within their orbit. And the extreme trans-Neptunian objects that have been found to date appear to be 
preferentially clustered on one side of the sky. So their orbits are very elongated. They're not circular. So they sort of have a direction to them. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be preferentially clustered on one side and not the other. So if you run this in a simulation and you say, how can we possibly get that to work? Uh, it turns out if you add another planet to your simulation that's just on the opposite side of the sky, it can help to force all of those other orbits to stay in place. Not not exactly in place, but they oscillate back and forth in a very confined direction instead of kind of spreading out across the sky over time, which we would expect otherwise. So it's it's hypothesized to explain this apparent coincidence that these objects, which are all beyond the orbit of Pluto, they're further yes. than Pluto. Yeah. Um, is Sedna one of these? Because that was one of the objects that demoted or kind of led to the demotion of Pluto, right? Yeah, so Sedna is one of the brightest of these objects. So it's probably one of the most famous ones. There are about maybe 10 to 15 of them that are known now. They're continuing to be slowly discovered, so the number is trickling upwards. Okay, so you, you were probably... Uh, you're pretty young. You're probably an undergrad at this time or something, right? When this was being announced, right? So this must have been quite impactful to you as a scientist when this announcement was made. Uh, do you mean when Planet Nine was yeah, announced? Yeah, when when the uh. first uh, was it 2005? I'm trying to remember the the year. Oh, when, when Pluto was demoted. No, no. Um, yeah, Planet Nine. I guess it must have been later than that. Yeah, because it was 2006, I think, that Pluto was demoted, mm -hmm. and then Planet Nine, the 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 Batigan and. Uh, brown paper that was that was actually in 2016 later. so that oh, was okay. quite Much a ways more later okay uh but Shepard and trujillo found sedna uh at least a year or two before that i forgot exactly which year okay so it was sort of in between the sequential like pluto was demoted they continued to find more and more of these dwarf planets and then this idea of planet nine arose as we continued to discover more in the distant solar system right i guess that makes sense because sedna is one of these objects so you yeah have, you have to have had sedna <laughs> in the bag already so yeah. this object what what would be the properties of this object this planet nine object yeah, so I think this is what makes Planet Nine so exciting, because if it existed, it would be a sub-Neptune type planet. And these planets are incredibly common in exoplanet systems, but we don't have one in the solar system, something that's between the size of Earth and Neptune. Uh, so if Planet Nine was there, it might actually suggest the solar system, at least in a way, is a bit more similar to the exoplanet systems than if it didn't exist. Uh, and it would be very cold, so it would be very, very far from the sun, uh, probably a very frozen world, not particularly hospitable to life or anything, but still just a different type of planet that we haven't seen in our solar system yet. And can you give us some numbers, like what, what kind of mass would it be compared to the Earth? Like how many times of the Earth's separation, that's one AU, how many AUs out would it be? Yeah, so the mass... Um, it would be about five to 10 Earth masses. Mm -hmm. So it would be pretty firmly not a super Earth, probably would be more of a gas giant type of planet, but smaller than Neptune, mm -hmm. um, so ice giant. Uh, and it would be about uh, 300 to 800 astronomical units from the sun. So that's about 10 times further than Pluto uh, is the closest type of planet nine that you would get. And then it could extend all the way out to 800 times further from the sun than the earth is so it's getting very very little flux from the sun it's very poorly lit and mm. uh very low temperature as a result uh, but we don't really what the simulations tell us is what its orbit could be and what its mass would be so other than that we have no idea what kind of atmosphere it would have for example except okay. for what could exist at that temperature range but simply the fact 
it is so far away explains why it is that astronomers thus far have not because that, that might be an immediate question it's like what if there's a huge planet out there <laughs> i think a natural reaction would be how come we don't know about it but it's just it's just the sheer distance to this thing yeah which is also kind of incredible because you know we can study galaxies that are much much farther away we can study the cosmic microwave background mm. and the only reason that there still remains so much undiscovered in the solar system is that these objects aren't really giving off a lot of light and so we're looking at sunlight that has to go from the sun to planet nine all the way back to earth and you have a lot of attrition during that process so there actually is a lot of parameter space so this kind of range of masses and distances where you could be hiding planets and there have been ideas of maybe there are other planets that are not this initially proposed planet nine there it could look very different and could still be hiding in that space where mm. we haven't seen anything so i think that's what makes this type of search so exciting is there are a lot of kinds of planets you could hide out there certainly if you could hide something sub-neptune size you could have Mars-sized things. You could have lots of, you could have Earth-sized objects that uh, aren't so strongly, I guess, searched for simply because Planet Nine is the one that there has been more evidence for. Uh, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't hide other planets that we just don't see gravitational perturbations from as strongly. It's kind of a theorist dream, right? Because it's a, it's, <laughs> yeah. you can just put whatever you want into this space to explain. And I know that there's been yeah. these wild papers of like, it could be a primordial black hole. And uh, yeah. I think a lot of that made the news because people were like, wow, that's, it's amazing that there's stuff out there in our own solar system that we still wouldn't know basic questions like that. Um, I have to ask, what do you think the community gauges on this? Do you think uh, it's been a, I guess it's been uh, you know seven years or so since then now since it's been released. But has the community kind of got behind this and been like, okay, Planet Nine must be there? Do you think there's overwhelming skepticism, or do you think it's somewhere in the middle? Like, what what do you think the the planetary scientists feel about Planet Nine? I would say it's quite divided. Uh, there are certainly people who think Planet Nine does not need to be there. This is probably a detection bias. Uh, there are others who think there's very strong evidence for Planet Nine. Uh, mm. There have been papers that have suggested this orbital clustering is better explained by a different iteration of Planet Nine also. So there's been a lot of kind of back and forth between different groups saying, what could this look like? Do we need a planet? You could certainly hide a planet, but do we need it to explain what we've seen? Mm. And yeah, I would say there's no clear consensus, which is sort of the fun space to be in in science where, you know, no one really knows for sure what the answer is. And I think that is what makes it so compelling to explore. Yeah. So it's like a version 9.2, 9.3 we've had of this planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah. you've been obviously, uh, as I said at the beginning, you've been looking trying to look for this Planet Nine signature um, in visible wavelengths. So this would be mostly reflected light. Yeah. Um, I guess it could be producing, it could be warm, you know, maybe have some internal heat as well. Um, but maybe you need an infrared camera to be able to detect that. Uh, you've been trying to use TESS to detect this, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Yeah. I always check that I get that. And <laughs> um, it seems like that would be a very difficult premise because TESS is a 10 centimeter, probably the similar size to some of these things that the fact are even smaller, you know, 10 centimeter size telescope, which collects hardly any light. How could it work that such a small aperture telescope 
could possibly detect something that our largest telescopes have thus far not been able to find. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the benefit of TESS is that even though it's a very small telescope, it's in space and it can continuously observe a particular part of the sky for months at a time. So anytime that you're observing something from the ground, you have, at least in visible wavelengths, you have to stop during the day because mm -hmm. the sun comes out and you need to have these data gaps that can make it much more difficult to find something that's really faint if you don't know where it is. So TESS is really convenient in that it doesn't have these data gaps. It stares at each part of the sky for almost a month at a time. So you have a lot of data that you can combine together to find uh, something faint like Planet Nine. Uh, and it has tremendous sky coverage. So because it's in space, we're able to observe the entire sky at some point during the test mission, whereas on the ground, depending on what your telescope is, you might not actually have access to the entire sky. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, TESS is not going to be able to see Planet Nine in individual images. It's just too small. It's not sensitive enough for that. But if you add together images from about a month, then you actually would be able to start digging out much fainter objects using all of that data together. So you're kind of stacking the, the photos on top of each other in this case? Yeah, so what's nice about something like Planet Nine is you can distinguish it from stars and things within the solar system because of its motion. So it is moving fast enough that uh, you can tell it's not a star. A star would just stay in exactly the same spot for mm. the entire month. Uh, but it's moving much too slowly to be a foreground asteroid. So asteroids that are closer to us, we're going to see pass by really quickly. Mm -hmm. Things that are very far away look effectively static. And Planet Nine would just move five to ten pixels over the course of a month, which is something that we shouldn't see for anything else because we don't know of anything that far out in the mm. solar system. There's nothing else that we have discovered at 300 to 800 astronomical units because we wouldn't see it unless it's planet-sized. Yeah. So. so when you do this stack, I mean, it sounds like that'd be difficult if I um, imagine like a racing car going past on the, and it was a dark, dark night and this racing car had no lights on it whatsoever, maybe just a tiny LED or something, just a tiny amount of light coming off it. And I took a very short exposure, I wouldn't see it. And so if I just, if I, you know, some of them have like the sport mode on the cameras where you get, shh, and it takes like this whole sequence, <laughs> just kind of what Tess is doing. But if you took yeah. those images and you stacked them, uh, the cars, as you said, is moving. This, the, the Planet Nine is moving. So if I just naively put all those photos on top of each other, uh, I'm not, it's still going to be, it's still going to be a tiny signal because it's moving, it's smeared out across and I probably would struggle to recover it. So yeah. how, how do you correct for that motion with the stacking technique? Yeah, so we, we use something called shift stacking, which is you shift your images along the path that you expect the object to potentially be on and then stack them together. Uh, and this is tricky because we don't know where Planet Nine is. It could be anywhere. We just know about how far it would move and about how bright it would be. Mm. So we actually need to check all of the possible paths for Planet Nine and shift and stack the images and see if anything interesting comes out of it. So what we do is we we mask out all of our stars, we mask out asteroids, we try to subtract out everything else in space that we know of mm -hmm. and see what can we dig out of the noise, what still remains once you've removed everything else. So in addition to looking for Planet Nine, we're also checking to see are there other really distant solar system objects that might come out of this because mm -hmm. anything that's very slowly moving, um, where Planet Nine would be moving even more slowly than other extreme trans-Neptunian objects, for example, but 
any of those can come out uh, pretty nicely if you know where they are. And then if you don't know where they are, then you can check a lot of paths and then um, try to figure out which of the signals that come out of there are realistic ones, which generally requires additional follow-up observations with a different telescope. But it's a nice way to pull out candidates from across the sky. We already mm. have this giant data set that we can use for this incredible data mining um, kind of opportunity that exists just to learn more about our outer solar system. And then afterwards, then you can take the ground-based telescopes and say, okay, well, we have a sense for where we think these objects are. We can point our telescopes and check with another telescope and verify that it's reproducible and that yeah. we're seeing it again. I love the fact that TESS was not designed to do this. You're really yeah. pushing it <laughs> to do something. This little 10 centimeter telescope does not want right. to do this. And you're pushing it into this discomfort zone of trying to make it do this awesome science. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, and so, yeah, you, so it must be challenging computationally, as you said, because you're, you propose a path but there are so many possible paths. So is that the idea you kind of suggest something that looks like um, one, you take all the possible candidate solutions for Planet Nine that maybe uh, Batikin and Brown suggested when they wrote their first paper or have iterated since. You take those possible paths and you, you run your algorithm. Okay, nothing there, try a different path. Keep going, keep going, keep going until basically you hopefully would get one of those or several of those reveal possible candidates. Is that kind of how, I mean, how do you do that path choice? Yeah, so it is effectively that, but it's actually relatively simple because planet nine is so far away. So mm. what we're looking at is actually just the earth is orbiting the sun and the test satellite is orbiting the earth. And mm -hmm. so uh, because of that, as the earth and tests are moving past the sun, you get some motion when you're just staring at one point in the sky uh, where you you see that objects in the outer solar system will move a little bit not because they're moving themselves but because earth is moving past them and planet nine would be so far away that it would just effectively look static to us mm. so what we're seeing is just this motion that's in the plane of earth's orbit and we're just looking for a shift of a few pixels in that one direction. So that makes it a lot simpler. You don't have to check, like, is it moving up and down? Is it moving right. in these kind of weird horizontal slash vertical ways? It's, it's just one direction that you're checking and uh, that makes it a lot easier. It's actually counterintuitively a lot easier to look for something like Planet Nine in this mission than it is to look for near Earth objects, um, mm. unless they're really bright, then, then you can see them right away. But if they're faint, they're pretty tricky because they have these curved paths and that makes it a lot harder to actually recover them. If mm. you just have to look along small straight lines, it's a lot easier than all the possible curved paths that an asteroid could take. So you've got some candidate stuff in the, in the some candidate TNOs certainly, that we don't mean trans-Neptunian objects, stuff beyond Neptune mm -hmm. uh, from this work. You're not sure yet about Planet Nine, that's work ongoing, but do you think, um, do you think TESS is the best bet? I mean, I guess to some degree you must feel confident about it being a good way to do this experiment. Is it the most likely mission if any mission is going to do this of finding Planet Nine in your opinion? I think of the space missions, certainly. So if we're talking about missions, then yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Vera Rubin Observatory is going to be able to search much deeper than we're able to with TESS. And so 
uh, there's going to be a tremendous amount of data that comes out of that observatory. So that's next year. Uh, so that's coming yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. So if it's not found with tests, then the Vera Rubin Observatory hopefully would find it or at least would tell us more of where it couldn't be, which mm. is tricky because it's hard to say that it's definitely not there just because you didn't find it. Uh, but that is going to be able to search very thoroughly in a way that we haven't really been able to do before. So TESS is kind of an intermediary leading up to there to see, are we able to pull it out beforehand? But if we're not, then hopefully the that search will either pull out Planet Nine pretty quickly uh, with its all-sky survey or we'll figure out maybe our picture of the solar system is fairly complete and we don't actually have another planet, which I think would also be a really useful result. Yeah, and then you've got a mystery to explain with this clustering still. That would yeah. still be a persistent problem. Yes. I, be, I bet you're hoping though that obviously it'd be great if Ferry Rubin you know, will survey this part of the sky and reveal the answer probably fairly definitively, but I, I assume you're hoping you get there first <laughs> before with tests. That'd be probably more exciting to kind of jump the gun a little bit and get ahead. Yeah, I think it would be like we have the data set and we might as well use it. So mm -hmm. I think it would be really fun to find it. It would be really fun to find other outer solar system objects. And yeah, I mean, I guess it would be nice to find it. But are you skeptical? Are you, do you think it's probably <laughs> not there? What's your personal hunch? I try to stay very agnostic on this because okay. I have seen so much back and forth of, you know, we really think it's there. We really don't think it's there. Mm. And in my opinion, whether or not the current evidence is considered robust enough, I think it's still useful to check. So I think we should, we should look for these things until we are quite confident that they're not there because it is such a giant value add to the solar system if we yeah. just had another planet. And we would be able to learn so, so much. Every single planet in the solar system is so valuable because we can't study exoplanets anywhere close to this kind of resolution. Yeah. Uh, and we have learned so much about the diversity of planets from both angles, from both the solar system and exoplanet systems. Uh, but we can't, we can't really study sub-Neptunes in particular up close in this kind of way through any other avenue just yet. And maybe someday we'll send a probe to Alpha Centauri or something and maybe there will be Stop a sub-Neptune the there. But, yeah, well, yeah. You, might use, you might use Planet Nine as your, your, in, your, your refueling station or something. Right? Yeah, maybe yeah. Some right a direction. nice gravitational lift from Planet Nine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be historic. And I think what's interesting from the historical perspective is, you, yeah, you mentioned this, there were, and I think Constantine Batagin has said to me before that he's 99% sure that it's there. And then I know there's others who are like 99% sure that it's not there. And so it's just interesting because we're all essentially faced with the same data. Uh, how are scientists coming to such ex extreme different views? Obviously, this doesn't happen for most things in science, like talk about climate change. It's pretty much 99% in one direction, right? And it's it normally arrive at consensus. And so I think it's interesting that there is no consensus. And so uh, it'll be once we know the answer for sure. I think it's going to be fascinating to piece back that story and see what what led each each side the wrong way i mean what was yeah. the and, and are there lessons there for future observations and beyond the solar system as well yeah um but on yeah. on this on, on the on the topic of history i do have to it's just a natural segue to go into this on on Oumuamua because that was a historic <laughs> observation and we mentioned uh vera rubin mm -hmm. which is this telescope coming next year and 
a lot of people are excited about the prospect of that discovering more Oumuamua. So maybe, again, I'm using the term Oumuamua and some people are like, what the hell is Oumuamua? Maybe <laughs> you can explain what is an interstellar asteroid? Is that the, the, the technical term? Or I just call them Oumuamua's, but maybe there's a better... <laughs> I love that word. Yeah, it's yeah. just so nice. So I, I think the technical term is interstellar object because we don't know if they're asteroids. Uh, they could be... Okay. Uh, like the second one that was found looked more like a comet. So it's small object. <laughs> so it's <laughs> something that's from outs. This is how do we know it's from outside the solar system? Because it's we only see it when it's in the solar system. Yeah. So you can track the object. You can see how it's moving inwards and outwards and actually fit an orbit to it. And if you try to fit an orbit to an interstellar object, only two of which have been found to date, it is on a hyperbolic orbit. So mm. it's not bound to the solar system. Uh, we would see it, hopefully if we catch it coming in, we'd see it coming in and then it just leaves and then we never see it again. So there was one of these that was discovered, Oumuamua, in 2017. That was this historic, amazing discovery where uh, we had never seen one of these before. It was tens of meters in size, which is pretty large for mm. an interstellar object. Uh, it was predicted that there should be lots of little rocky bodies floating around, but not enough large ones that we would actually expect to see them within a short amount of time with just one of our ground-based telescopes already existing. Yeah. So Oumuamua was really odd because it had this uh, kind of like it looked like the McDonald's sign, kind of <laughs> a light curve. So <laughs> makes you hungry, like yeah, right. <laughs> so it it was not round, we think, because it it had this kind of wildly varying light curve that made it look like it was probably either this elongated object or like a pancake-like object. Uh, so it was tumbling, and it had this kind of strange light curve that we ended up pulling out of it. Uh, and there have also been these observations that showed that it was perhaps accelerating out of the solar system, uh, which is also kind of, there have been ideas for, oh, maybe it was outgassing, but then people searched for what could have been causing the outgassing and didn't really see any of the mm. molecules they might have expected. So it is unfortunate that we can't follow it up again, really, mm. because it's already on the way out of the solar system it's i guess it's probably still in the solar system but too far for us to see it it's probably beyond so, neptune now or where is it that's a good question uh it probably depends on what you mean by beyond neptune because it came from up and then oh, it went right, down yeah. yeah but it's i doort it's more i doubt it's beyond the Oort cloud so it's probably yeah. in the solar system but, but too far for us to balance. clearly image it anymore it's got too faint as yeah. it's moved away yeah and of course there's borisov and borisov is a much more familiar looking object than it, it there's been a huge amount of stories of course about Oumuamua and people speculating about what it might be but um Borisov has had far less attention, right? Like the, the media just <laughs> yeah. does not care about Borisov. But tell us, what is Borisov then? Why is it so uninteresting from the from the media perspective? <laughs> but interesting, I think, still to us. Yeah, so Borisov was the second interstellar object that was found in 2019. Uh, it was named after an amateur astronomer who found it with a mm. telescope that he made himself, which is incredible. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so that one looked a lot like a comet from the solar system. So it was much easier to explain. I think the fact that it was discovered again was kind of strange because it's another large body from outside the solar system. And it wasn't previously thought that we should have that many free floating rocks that are that big mm. outside that we would see um, objects at this kind of 
occurrence rate where we saw two within the span of two years, although we haven't seen any since. And it's not clear to me whether that's just, oh, the pandemic kind of stalled a lot of things and maybe some telescopes weren't online, or if that is really telling us a lot about the occurrence rate of these objects. Um, so Borisov seems like a comet. So it looked like something that was probably ejected from an extrasolar system mm -hmm. that was in the outer realms and then ended up just passing through our solar system. And I think it's still a really interesting object, but it's it had less puzzling features. It didn't have this weird shape to it. It, it didn't show a clear acceleration, I, I don't think. Although it's a comet, so even if it did, that wouldn't be too surprising yeah. in that case. Yeah. So, so Borisov... Um obviously didn't uh, totally surprise us. But it is, what's interesting between those two is that it's, as a comet, you'd expect it to be brighter, at least naively. I'm, I'm not someone who works on comets, but I would naively expect an icy object with a cometary tail would be far brighter than a dark asteroid. And I think the, uh, the reflectivity, the albedo of Oumuamua was indeed quite dark, had like this darkish red kind of color. Um, and so that would suggest that it would be far easier to find the, the comets and so all things being equal, you'd have to have far more of the dark things uh, than the cometary things to, to end up with a one-to-one -one ratio of them, right? Does, does that, yeah. Has anyone sort of looked into the statistics of that? What does this imply about the population of these two types of objects in the greater beyond the solar system? Right. Yeah, I would need to check how much closer one of them came to us than the other as well. Right. Um, but I think the problem is we're not really sure what kind of population Oumuamua would have come from. Mm -hmm. And there are these ideas that maybe this was a shard of molecular hydrogen ice, I think, or mm -hmm. like a nitrogen iceberg or something that formed in a molecular cloud during the star formation phase. Or uh, maybe it was just some kind of weird asteroid that we're not used to in the solar system, or who knows what it could have been, really. But that yeah. makes it really hard to say what the underlying population was. And it's not clear whether Oumuamua and Tuai Borisov came from a similar background population or if they're just completely different kinds of objects. Mm. So I think there's just so much uncertainty when you're trying to use, I would say these are sort of two separate N equals one <laughs> populations. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult to know, like you would have to make some assumptions to extrapolate from that how how many of these things are out there and are they the same? Are they not the same? How much of this was like, because it's not repeatable, right? We can't go back and revisit these objects and check again for our theories. Yeah. Uh, we, we sort of just have to wait for more of them. So yeah. Vera Rubin Observatory should hopefully find quite a few of them or that's what projections are suggesting. And there's this really cool idea, uh, through the European Space Agency, I think, to actually have an interstellar comet interceptor mission yeah. where uh, I think they had already been planning to do some kind of comet interceptor. And then they, the discovery of those two interstellar objects came by and they said, oh, well, if there's a good opportunity and we find the right objects, then... And was your former advisor amazing. involved in that, Greg? Was, it, was that one of his ideas? He, I don't think it was his idea, but I think he, he might have been involved... I think his graduate student, Daryl Seligman, is definitely involved Darryl. in it. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure how involved Greg is in okay. that one. Yeah, but that was yeah. a wonderful idea to, I mean, if we could do a sample return or just even do yeah. mass spectroscopy or something on the surface of, a, of an interstellar object, I mean, that'd be a mind-blowing dis yeah. discovery for science. Um, the the rates, I mean, you have been thinking a little bit about these, these rates of these objects. Um, and I guess what's nice is that there's kind of a simple... 
physics element to this, that if you want to get something to leave another solar system, because presumably this stuff must have formed in a solar system somewhere, it's hard to imagine this stuff could just form spontaneously in a in a gas cloud. Um, it's just you'd, you'd always have enough over density to eventually lead to a star or planets or something in that situation. So if you had that situation, how could you ever propel something with enough energy to leave an entire solar system? What kind of interactions or history might we speculate for Oumuamua and uh, is that consistent with our understanding of what planetary systems even look like? Yeah, so a lot of exoplanet systems have been found with the planets very tightly bound to the star. So they're very, very close into the star, and that's just because of our detection biases. It's easiest to find those, and they're the ones that transit. Uh, but if you look at systems that have wider orbiting planets, they're much better at projecting or ejecting uh, interstellar objects outwards. Uh, so they start off as just normal asteroids or comets within the system. And uh, even within the solar system's formation, we think that Jupiter probably ejected a lot of material during that process uh, because the, these wider orbiting planets can give this gravitational lift to objects that they can get out of the solar system. So this mm -hmm. is similar to, we had mentioned, maybe Planet Nine could do this for getting to Alpha Centauri. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to send something out of the solar system, you can use the planets, uh, particularly Jupiter is very good at ejecting material because it's very very massive and on a wide orbit, uh, but also all the gas giants in the solar system are capable of doing this. So like Voyager 1 this. and 2 did that, right? They they slung I around. So I'm actually not sure. That was... I think they I did the Grand Tour Voyager. and they okay. missed. I think Voyager 2 <laughs> pretty much hit every planet except for maybe Neptune. It like missed one of them or Uranus, yeah. But I think, mm. yeah, they did a Grand Tour and I think Voyager 1 hit Saturn and then went up out of the plane yeah. i think that was the difference but anyway we can someone's probably <laughs> going to fact check that but yeah so i guess the point is that we have used this effect ourselves in the mm -hmm. solar system in an artificial environment but this should also happen naturally as asteroids get too close to these objects yeah yeah so uh particularly early on in the solar system we think that the giant planets sort of migrated around and they disrupted the asteroids that were within the solar system at that time, and a lot of material was ejected. So if something similar happens in exoplanet systems, which if you just extrapolate, they're probably in many ways similar to the solar system. If we don't think that we're special and unique in this yeah. way, that uh, might be a little bit uh, more unnatural. So it, it seems like wider orbiting planets should probably exist in other systems. We've certainly seen some, although they're trickier to find. Uh, and protoplanetary disk images have suggested a prevalence of many of these kind of Neptune to Jupiter-sized planets that might be carving out gaps in these disk images that have come back. So while it's hard to actually see those planets directly, mostly because they have very long orbits, you need to track them for many years to actually confirm that they're there. Mm -hmm. uh, they. There's some evidence that is like from various directions is suggesting that they might exist in other systems and they'd also be very good at producing a background of interstellar objects. So you're saying that if we, if we took a, a Jupiter mass planet and it was orbiting at the same distance to the Earth or maybe let's go closer in like Mercury or something around the sun, even though it's the same mass as our own Jupiter, it's so close into the star. So deep within the gravitational well of the solar system that even it cannot deflect these objects out. Right. And so the progenitor of Oumuamua must have likely been a, it must have interacted at some point with a, with a massive planet on the edges of a solar system. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, and that is an area that we know less about the population from... Uh, yeah. It, I guess the only real probe we have is maybe microlensing is maybe our best probe and direct imaging to some degree. Yeah. Um, microlensing is very sensitive to massive, well, even very small planets far from their star. So does it look consistent if you sort of take the... I'm sure there's going to be some degree of extrapolation, but if you take the the hints of how many objects are out there, is there enough to... How, how many Oumuamua's would you expect to detect with that population, with some population of asteroids in those solar systems? How many would we end up with seeing with, um, say, Vera Rubin in the next few years? Yeah, so this is related to a project that I did a few years ago that was kind of extrapolating from protoplanetary disk images that maybe these Neptune-sized planets on relatively wide orbits are fairly common. So if you assume that the gaps carved out in protoplanetary disks are caused by planets, you can figure out what mass those planets would need to be as well as what orbits they would be on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then suggest, well, if those planets exist, then they're actually quite good at ejecting interstellar objects. And if, if all of that is true, and if interstellar objects are following a kind of power law-like size frequency distribution that we see in the solar system, then we'd probably get one or two Oumuamua-sized objects each year, uh, and up to tens or to maybe even a hundred smaller objects that uh, that is a little shakier because you assume a lot by extrapolating to different sizes. Mm. But we have a lot of potential to see not just even one or two, but potentially like tens of these objects with the Vera Rube Observatory. And it really just depends on how many of them are actually there because we should be sensitive to them if they are there. Do but you mean each year or in total of the like a decade of observations or something? Each year. Wow. Yeah. So we should certainly see at least a few with Vera Rubin Observatory. And then it's just a matter of depending on how common they are, uh, maybe we'll see a lot of them if you actually have a lot more smaller objects. So you can you can imagine if we have a few of these larger objects that we've already seen, that means we probably have a lot more small objects. Mm. Uh, in the solar system, we have far more small asteroids than larger ones because right. the larger ones break up into smaller ones. Yeah. And then I guess the idea would be that we find these objects and then the interceptor is sort of parked ready to go <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. you, you said like, it's over there it just shoots off and yeah. tries to get there it would be i mean i think the the, the uniqueness of Oumuamua, the, the one-offness of this object is what um is, is really driving me as a scientist to want to know the answers to what these other objects look like um of course there has been we have to bring it up that there has been speculation about this object being a light sail and that has obviously kind of dominated the uh the coverage the media coverage especially of Oumuamua and um that's that's come with pros and cons right it's got a lot of attention to this important work of looking at interstellar objects but um it's also been frustrating maybe to some planetary scientists who think these objects uh you know are perfectly consistent with natural and that and there's something there that's um, that's interesting enough without it being aliens, right? There's something like this is already pretty fascinating. These objects alone, I have to ask, what is your sort of uh, take on um, the, the 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 idea that this object is so anomalous that it that it's implausible to explain naturally, or do you see this as something that can be explained with, within the bounds of physical reality? Yeah. So if we think about 
what we saw with New Horizons and its extended mission, uh, this object, Arakoth, ended up looking kind of like a snowman. Uh, oh, so yeah. it, it was like two sort of flattened circular bodies kind of fused together. So probably initially it was a binary. Sort of, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 So it was sort of two fused pancakes. Uh, so because of that, I think it would actually be really useful to study the outer solar system a bit further and just see if these pancake-like objects are very prominent. Mm -hmm. But if they are, I think that would be a pretty strong case for maybe maybe the shape at least wasn't mm -hmm. so unusual. And then perhaps we can, with more of these objects, learn more about is the acceleration something that could be explained naturally. But I think for me, I try to tend towards the least spectacular explanation possible <laughs> until I really cannot hold on to that anymore. Yeah. So it's Occam's razor. Yeah, yeah. Occam's yeah. razor. So yeah. So that's kind of where I stand where I, I will continually try to probe the most natural explanation until it just there's no way that it works. And then then we'll move on to considering other possibilities. And I would love if it was aliens. That'd be cool. Yeah. Like, if we had aliens sailing through the solar system a lot, that would be really fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I would need to be seeing maybe more of the, those spacecraft coming through or like other lines of evidence as well in order to fully get on board with something like that. Um, and, and I guess your work does kind of pour a little bit of cold water on it because with these rate estimates, you're saying it could be as many as you know, 10 per year potentially of, with Vert Rubin. So maybe then I think one of the arguments that was initially made was this, it'd be very surprising, you know, the rate calculation doesn't make sense. Like Panstars, which was what originally discovered Oumuamua, uh, should not in any feasible calculation have discovered an Oumuamua. It's, it was just, it, it implies that there are so many of these things that nature cannot possibly produce them and someone is directing these things towards us. But it sounds like, um, maybe we should be a little bit more careful with that argument and the there are plausible bounds within the rate calculations of ejecting stuff that could potentially reproduce panstars getting one of these in its entire lifetime is that yeah. right yeah yeah and i think we'll see if we see absolutely nothing with the very room observatory that would be shocking to me <laughs> because yeah. that would make it seem like wow maybe this was some kind of crazy coincidence, but then, you know, do coincidences exist in science? Um, but I think we are going to see more because we saw Borisov and Borisov was like a comet. And so if, if Vera Rubin Observatory didn't see any of those, it would be kind of incredible that we already saw two of them with yeah. just existing instruments. Now, your work is so diverse because you, you go all the way from Planet 9, which is in the solar system, to interstellar objects which are leaving the solar system and then of course to my bread and butter exoplanets which are obviously outside of the solar system yeah and um you've you've approached many of these problems with a fusion of both you know unique observational techniques for finding these things certainly in the case of planet nine and um a deep understanding of the dynamical uh history and origins of these objects what what makes them tick how do they get into their into these unusual orbits and Oumuamua has a very unusual orbit clearly as you said it kind of comes also out of the planes it's, it's like very tilted over compared to the solar system but maybe that's not surprising because all solar systems are kind of arbitrarily tilted yeah um but there's another kind of tilt that you've been measuring that i i did want to talk to you about and that's the the tilt between the planet and a star around other stars in exoplanet systems 
And that's that. I think when you first hear that, if you've never heard of this technique before, it's amazing that's even possible to measure this because we cannot see these planets. We don't have really, I mean, in very rare cases, we have some photos of them, but even if you have a photo of a planet, it wouldn't tell you much about that, that angle. Um, how is it that we are able to measure the misalignment angle between a star and a planet? And maybe you could also be more precise with that. What do I mean by a misalignment angle? What angle am I actually talking about there? Yeah, yeah, because there are a lot of angles in these systems. And the one that I've been specifically looking at is the angle between the planet's orbit and the stellar spin. Mm -hmm. So there's also the planet itself can be tilted in different directions. So the yeah. Earth is tilted by 23 and a half degrees. Uh, but that that's a lot harder to probe. So that has been studied in a couple of exceptional cases, but is very hard to study for more systems. So this is the angle, so. just to clarify, this is the angle that if I imagine the star spinning and I draw like a, a rotation axis through it, like North Pole to South Pole, that that rod that went through the star. And then I equally, I take the plane, the disk of the orbit, and I stick a rod that sticks up vertically from the center. It's that, it's the angle between those two yeah. rods almost in space that you're trying to measure. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's that's much more measurable than some of these other uh, angles that exist in the system. Uh, where it's just telling you whether your planet's orbit is going the same way the star spins mm -hmm. or if it's going backwards relative to the way the star spins, which is strange, but not necessarily non-existent. It looks mm. like there's some hints for that in other systems. Uh, or if it is orbiting sideways, and there are also hints of that in other systems. It's like, who ordered that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's like in the solar system, the planets aren't perfectly aligned with the way the sun spins. So our orbits are tilted by about six degrees. And there have been it's a lot close. of studies of, could Planet Nine have done that? Could something yeah. else have done that? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's pretty close to aligned. But there are a lot of, especially hot Jupiter systems. So the systems with really massive planets, really close to the star, often are more tilted. And they're kind of, the planets are orbiting sideways or backwards or in these weird directions. And this is something that we can actually study using radial velocity observations. So we're looking at the Doppler shift of the star due to the tug of the planet. Uh, and it turns out that if your planet is actually transiting your star, it'll cover up different parts of the stellar limb. So your star is spinning. Uh, there's lots of different spins within the system, but mm -hmm. as your planet is moving around the star, it will cover up different parts of the stellar disk. So mm -hmm. you get the part that is moving towards you that is at some points covered up by the planet, the part that's moving away that's at other points covered up by the planet, and you end up with a tiny extra Doppler shift. So you get this little warp in your overall Doppler shift curve mm. uh, because of this planet being in front of different parts of the star. So this is called the Rossiter-McLaughlin effect, and it's something that we can use to actually measure mostly for pretty large planets, so largely hot Jupiters, but also starting to push towards smaller planets as well, uh, this angle between which way they're orbiting relative to the way the, the star spins. So if, it, if you imagine a vanilla system where everything's aligned, perfectly aligned, um, the let's say the star is spinning in kind of an arbitrarily clockwise sense relative to some observer, and if the if the planet is going around the same sense, then that means uh, the as viewed from Earth in this in this situation, it's a lot of angles to get your head around. <laughs> the UB seeing the uh, star spinning, uh, t let's say towards you on on the leading edge, yeah, and so uh, you'd be blocking out the blue shifted part of the star first. 
Yeah. And so you'd get a net redshift. Yeah. The overall the star would appear redder than it usually would. Yeah. And so that's what you'd get a redshift, then go back to normal, and then a blue shift, and then back yeah. to normal forever for a long time. Or not forever, but until it comes around again. Mm-hmm. And so that would be your alliance system. But you're saying that there are systems which you which don't look like this at all that they're doing something completely different and that's telling you there's a there's a huge misalignment angle yeah there's nothing else that could cause that right it's it's pretty unique yeah yeah it's pretty unique and uh you would get that classic sort of symmetric curve where you expect the the upwards uh like again net red shift and then blue shift if it's aligned but if it is going backwards then you'd get the blue shift and then the red shift so it'd be yeah. just flipped the other way uh, or you might just see exclusively a red shift or exclusively a blue shift if it's just moving upwards and that that would be a sideways orbit so that's saying your planet is never covering the red shifted part it only covers the blue shifted mm. or vice versa so it has to be so. massively tilted over for that to be true yeah yeah okay yeah so we see these these range of alignments. Um, what is uh, and we're measuring this with this this cool Rost McLaughlin effect. Uh, what how do we exp- what are the possible explanations for for how planets? Given that I think this was unexpected, right? Because as you said, the solar system is pretty you know everything's pretty quiescent, pretty calm. Look at these exoplanet systems. We see tons of not just planets but hot Jupiter planets plants massive plants very close to their star and yet somehow those these big boys have been somehow twisted over um what are the possible explanations as to how this is happening yeah so you could possibly during the protoplanetary disk stage so before the planet is actually formed you could tilt your disk and then your planets just form within a disk that's been tilted and then that would lead to a tilted planet ultimately. So you'd probably need another star in the system or something else that allows you to tilt that disk. But that's one way you could do this. Or you could have dynamical scattering between planets in the system that might lift up one planet from its initial orbital plane and potentially eject the other planet as usually kind of the traditional hot Jupiter formation mechanism where you launch a planet onto a very extreme orbit and mm-hmm. eject the other planet. Which is like Oumuamua um, type case, right? That must have been, Yeah. It's, a, it's not a planet, but that must have been its history to have been scattered essentially right. off another object. Yeah. Right. And there have been rogue planets found. So there probably are planets that have been ejected from different systems. Mm-hmm. The solar system might have actually had a planet ejected or multiple planets ejected early on. And so that's a whole other like kind of like a Muamua, but much larger yeah, uh, kind yeah. of field, which is also very interesting. And so so basically the two ideas are that it's it's either planets messing with each other within presumably they formed within the disk. And so they're originally all flat, but then subsequently it's like these toddlers in the playground start messing around with each other and they all fly off in different directions or it's that the entire playground itself the the disc from which they form the nursery is in it itself that is somehow tilted over that seems mm-hmm. almost the stranger one how i can kind of imagine and we've talked about examples of how it could happen plants messing with each other but how could the entire disc be twisted compared to a star 
Yeah, so if you have another stellar companion, then it can cause the disk to sort of move around relative to the stellar spin axis. Uh, so depending on where the companion is relative to your disk, if it's outside of the disk plane, then it can mm -hmm. cause your disk to sort of shift around uh, relative to the plane of the binary companion. So it's like a so, lurking star that's kind of yeah, so kind if of you, wide orbit and it's just yeah. slowly tugging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. and you can have shorter orbits, but you usually don't get hot Jupiters forming from those because you truncate your planetary disk if your star is too close to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, if you have another star in the system, it can produce a lot of interesting other effects that could like flip your system. This, this could also be after the disk has dispersed. You can also flip planets once they've formed if you have another star there to do it. I can't help think of Uranus because Uranus, of course, is tilted over and it's tilted over compared to the in a different angle now we're talking about really it's yeah. it's spin axis is tilted over i think it's almost 90 degrees or maybe a bit more than that yeah. compared to the rest of the solar system and it kind of also dragged its i think it dragged its satellites along with it and so they're also in that plane but you could imagine if it captured a moon it might capture the moon preferentially in the same plane that all the other planets go around because that's where most stuff tends to be and so then you'd have a huge spin orbit alignment. And of course, the explanation for that would be an impact. At least that's, that's what people tend to hmm. argue for Uranus, is that maybe something smashed onto it and on it lopsided it and it got knocked over. Maybe it's a bit extreme, but could something impact a star and tilt it over like that from its disk? Or we, I guess that would yeah. be so disruptive, maybe the entire disk would not survive such an event. Yeah, I think it would be challenging to tilt the entire star. Uh, you might imagine ways that the outer layer of your star might be able to kind of move around in a line. And that's assuming that your star isn't all rotating together, which is probably true that it's not all rotating in exactly the same kind of synchronized motion. It's mm -hmm. a ball of gas. And so you could have certain layers of the gas rotating at slightly different speeds. Um, but yeah, I think this is very much a stellar interiors question, like just how well can you decouple one layer of the star from another because they would be inter interacting with each other, you'd get some shear between those layers. And so uh, over time you would probably equilibrate to not have mm. layers that are completely decoupled from each other. Yeah, and so an another way to maybe get some insight on these two ideas, whether it's the disc tilting or the, the planets interacting with each other, um, I guess the problem with hot Jupiters as a sample is that they are inherently weird systems. Only 1% or even less than 1% of stars have hot Jupiters. So they're not like the normal way which planets are made. Um, and they're also presumably the product of some kind of extreme event in the solar system, like some kind of extreme scattering event or very rapid dismigration that you think would be pretty disruptive to other planets. Indeed, that's tends to be what we see. It's very rare they have other companions in those systems. They tend to be lonely, the hot Jupiters. So um, it would be, I know you've been working on systems which don't look like hot Jupiters as maybe a way of getting some insight, and especially these resonant systems. So maybe you could tell us about why is it that a resonant system is particularly a useful laboratory for understanding the possible differences between these two models? Yeah, so the resonant systems are a unique case in that uh, 
by resonance, we mean that these are in mean motion resonances specifically. So there are different kinds of resonances, mm -hmm. but this is one where one of the planets is orbiting, say, twice for every one time an outer planet is orbiting. Uh, they have this very synchronized motion that actually causes them to interact with each other more closely because they come to conjunction where they're very close together much more often than if they had yeah. more random like the moons motion. of jupiter do this right yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so the moons of jupiter are in a famous laplace resonance so one to two to four mm -hmm. uh, which has been seen in i think at least one or two other exoplanet systems mm -hmm. but the resonances are actually kind of rare in exoplanet systems and there have been all these ideas for why that is because if you try to simulate how planets migrate within a disk they naturally end up drifting into resonances so they end up being trapped within these configurations that are very stable um, and then they stay there and when the disk disperses the question is what happens to them and it seems like maybe a lot of them become unstable so as your disk is dispersing you have extra forces that are kind of influencing the orbits of your planets and they might become unstable as you're changing the environment slowly. Mm. Uh, so that could disrupt a lot of the resonances, but we do see that some of them remain. So we still see, similar to Jupiter's moons, uh, that kind of configuration in a small percentage of planetary systems. And we think that those are probably some of the most quote-unquote pristine planetary systems right. and that they retained that primordial configuration that is you don't really naturally produce resonances after your disk has dispersed it's, so you wouldn't you wouldn't expect there to have been a history of extreme scattering in such a system right that that no. doesn't make sense with the story of how it gets into a resonance like this yeah if okay. you had scattering you would destroy the resonance right mm -hmm. away it's a pretty delicate configuration right so if you look at the tilts of systems that have resonances then you know that those tilts are probably pretty pretty good at tracking where the disk was mm. because you don't expect a lot of dynamical evolution after the disk has evolved otherwise it would have probably destroyed your resonance at some point and so looking at those we end up seeing that also some of those systems are a little bit tilted so not very tilted but up to about 20 degrees tilted and mm. uh, if we recall the solar system is tilted by about six degrees so that kind of tells us at least in terms of how tilted over we are maybe the solar system is pretty normal uh, we have quite a few planets that interact with each other kind of in a more stable way at least in the immediate term we're not losing a planet anytime soon <laughs> yeah. and, and we're also a little bit tilted just like a lot of these exoplanet systems yeah i, I mean i almost uh while i can i certainly agree with what you just said i can almost think see it the other way though that the it implies maybe that the solar system is not like a, a complete outlier but perhaps a, a new one of the quietest dynamical systems in a way right because you mm -hmm. have um you have this six degree tilt, which amongst the spread of all resonant systems would be in the lowest, uh, what, tertile? Is that the word? Like the lowest third, yeah. <laughs> more or less, of your, yeah. of your distribution. So, yeah, amongst the quietest. And then on top of that, this is just the resonant systems that you're looking at, which is not representative of all planetary systems, of course. And we, we right. know that there's lots of planetary systems which do have scattering events in their history. And clearly, the solar system... Uh, seems to not be in a resonant state, but a fairly pristine state to some degree. And so um, I guess that, that makes me wonder, 
what are your feelings about the uniqueness of the solar system or the the rarity of the solar system maybe it's a better way of saying it how 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 common do you think this situation is so in terms of the tilts we have seen a lot of very tilted hot jupiter systems but those are actually quite rare systems they're only around about one percent of sun-like stars so those are quite intrinsically rare systems and I would say we would need to make more measurements of non-hot Jupiters to confirm, are there a lot of other kinds of systems Mm -hmm. that are commonly tilted or not, even if they have smaller planets within them and those that aren't hot Jupiters. Uh, I think it's, it's a difficult question how common is the solar system because there are so many ways that you can decide like if you make the box very small and you say Mm. if it's like the solar system it must have an earth-like planet it must have a jupiter it must have eight planets then suddenly you're diminishing (laughs) ruling out all of these different kinds of systems and there's nothing left it's just the solar system so i think with our current detection techniques we don't have a fully complete answer certainly to whether the solar system is common along a lot of these axes Mm. in terms of the tilts i wouldn't say it's too unusual. It's looking like Jupiter-sized planets are maybe not incredibly common, although not incredibly uncommon, maybe mm. 10% of sun-like stars or so. Uh, and then it, it really just depends on how you define something that's like the solar system. And I think that's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery that we're obviously still trying to work on. And I think it's a fascinating one. And um, I do like your answer because I think it bothers me with the rare earth hypothesis sometimes that we say well you have to have a large moon you have to have you know exactly this amount of water and this size planet but that's just our story and we we're kind of back engineering our story and assuming this is the only way to get to to rome but maybe there are other paths to rome as well right there are other ways of getting to this situation so um it's both it is an important question to understand the architecture and frequency of our solar system and you're doing wonderful work trying to break into that but uh i'm i'm pleased that we're keeping an open mind about the not being too overly anthropocentric about it it's, it's all about what we look like <laughs> right um so i mean this has been great uh, i'm gonna let you go but maybe you could just tell us uh if people want to learn more about your research where can they where can they find you yeah i have a personal website that has a pretty comprehensive list of i try to include bite-sized overviews of all of the papers that I've led at least and have so far been able to maintain that pretty consistently. And uh, yeah, I think this this podcast is, is one great place. I also have been on the Astro Soundbites podcast and was a co-host for that for the first 55 episodes. So yeah, I, I pop up here and there. I'm great. fairly Googleable. So. I'll put those links in the in the description as well so people have them. Yeah, well, thank, thank you so you. much, man. This has been excellent. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So that was my conversation with Professor Melina Rice. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I think for me, speaking with Melina, it reminded me of just how interconnected so many different aspects of science truly are And yet, at the same time, unfortunately, how we have often lampooned them into different categories. For an example, in many universities, there is not a single department that studies planets. In fact, you'll often find two separate ones, a planetary science department, 
they'll often focus on the solar system. And then maybe in the astronomy department, you might have folks such as myself, and I guess Melina is in the astronomy department as well, where they focus on exoplanets. But that boundary is artificial because, of course, in reality, we're both studying the same types of objects. And if we truly want to understand their nature, we have to ultimately combine forces and interconnect and have that synergy of those two fields. That has unfortunately often been missing. And so I'm really, I really enjoyed hearing about Melina's work of how it was bridging that gap, going all the way from the solar system, looking for planet nine, which itself not only has implications for the solar system, but implications for the occurrence rate of Neptunes across the universe. And where is our mini Neptune that we were supposed to have in our solar system? How do these things form? It connects to all of that. And yet we have to make these fake dividing lines that they have to be treated separately. So I really applaud what Melina is doing. And I think it's important that we keep those lines of communication open, that we do not shut the door to one another. And I think that is actually slowly happening, uh, not just between the solar system and exoplanets, but we're seeing that line sort of break down in many different fields. Astrobiology is a really great example. And similarly, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI or technosignatures, is another fantastic opportunity to bridge so many different fields together. Of course, nobody can be an expert on everything. And I'm certainly not, I don't think Melina we're going to be an expert on everything. None of us can learn the entire volume of science. We do have to specialize. But keeping that door open to be aware of what is happening in these other fields and potentially see the connections is incredibly valuable. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I certainly got a lot out of it. If you are enjoying these conversations in general on the Cool Words podcast, then one way you can support us is to head to coolwordslab.com slash support. That's coolwordslab.com slash support, where there we kind of have like a patron, but it's not exactly patron. It comes directly to a research fund. That is it. So the way this works is that, you know, if I am able to have my research pot of money funded by you guys or partially supported by you guys, it means I have to spend less time writing proposals, I have to spend less time clawing for money through federal resources, which ultimately gives me more time to do my outreach work, to make these podcasts, make the videos, and of course, do amazing science, which connects to all of the work that we do on the outreach side as well. So that's my pitch to you. If you're interested in supporting what we do, that is the best way, is to directly support research in the Cool Words Lab directly through that fund. So please do check that out, coolwordslab.com support. So until the next episode, see you around the galaxy.